first morning of the peace over in Gunnersville, I spent probably close to an hour watching Good Morning America and the local news, and they were doing a special series of programs, as they have been doing in recent weeks, on child abuse. I think the whole nation has been shocked and outraged over news in recent months of child abuse, sexual abuse, in many daycare centers and little kindergartens and in the classroom of some small and private schools and large alike. And I think they've been equally shocked to realize that a tremendous amount of this goes on inside the home and that child molestation and incest, mother, son, father, daughter, uncles, adopted or foster children, etc., is very commonplace in our society, much more so than most people wanted to begin to believe. Now, for years I've talked about homicide, saying it ought to be called homicide, because in truth murder has moved indoors, and the most common form of murder these days is murder between and among members of the same family. One of the most bizarre of which I ever heard was a father and a son who were arguing over Thanksgiving dinner, and one leapt up, grabbed the knife in the turkey, and flew across the table and stabbed the other one to death years ago. That's one of the most bizarre of all. Policemen know that one of the worst calls they can get is when a neighbor calls because there's a lot of screaming and shouting and maybe a gunshot next door, and they are called to try to quell a domestic disturbance of some sort. They know that emotions are at a fever pitch. They know they're walking into something which could mean their own lives. They don't really know what to expect. And so they have to answer that call, and understandably with a great deal of apprehension, because many policemen have lost their lives in trying to settle some of the arguments and the knockdown, drag-out brawls and even the running gun battles between husband and wife in our society. Now, what is there in our society that makes such a tremendous percentage, and yes, it is a big percentage, of our people, male and female, old and young, sick in their minds and hearts, to the point that they will creep around and get some sort of perverse satisfaction out of the molestation of a tiny child. We've heard of rapes of four-year-olds. There are tens of thousands of little children in the United States who are disappearing from the parking lot, from the supermarket, from just around the corner. A little girl says, I'm going next door to play, and they never see her again. And you've seen the programs. You've seen special movies made of it. And they never see their children again, some of these parents. And can you imagine anything worse than that, having your own child that you love so much, on a routine, sunny afternoon, go next door to play, and you simply go around, and pretty soon you call the husband at work, and he comes home frantic, and then you call the police, and they tell you, oh, well, she'll turn up, because hundred, you know, 90% of the calls we get, uh, it's just the child that's wandered off somewhere, and of course that's probably true, and the child doesn't come home, and the parents are out driving all over the community, they've called every friend they know, they've called all the hospitals, they've called the sheriff's department, they've called the local police. They are now beside themselves. They're just about to the point where they need to go to the hospital with fear and fright and concern. And the child never turns up. And all too often, in a thick copse of woods within a few miles of where the child disappeared, is found an emaciated, beaten, disfigured, bloody, nude little body. And some filthy, rotten, perverted freak in our society has taken the life of a child to satiate his twisted, perverted sex lust. You probably guess I want to talk about the family and about children. It is said that the work that is to come during this latter day, and I'm reading in Malachi 4, verse 5 and 6, is to promote family unity. Now, you know, it is assumed that the work of God that would come during this day is a work which is to come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. And for years the church thought that what this scripture, these two passages mean, is that families would be reunited, that there would be strong family ties, that we would honor and revere the gray-headed grandparents and the great-grandparents, that we would have a tight-knit family structure. 
Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the eternal, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So it was assumed that a part of the work is to promote family unity and strong family ties, and unless that is done, God is somehow going to curse the earth. So a part of what the church must do, if it really is going to go out in the power and the spirit of Elijah, is to promote family unity. Is that really true? Is that what this scripture is telling us? As I look into the Bible about the family of God, and then the family of the church, and then the individual family, I see, basically, three separate units. Now, three is a number that God uses that has to do with finality, as well as seven. Seven is the word, or the number, rather, that means and connotes perfection. But you'll recall that on occasion, a prophet of God would beseech God three times, and then the answer would come, as in the case of Elijah, when a child was given his life again. Or how the apostle Paul besought God three times that a certain affliction would depart from him and finally realize that God's answer is going to stay with me. The third time, people say, is the charm. Well, they get that from the Bible because three connotes totality or finality, not in the sense of perfection. There were three great archangels. The, the angels are divided into thirds, we read in Revelation 12 and verse 9. If you will follow along with me for a moment, I want to show you something about these three family brackets. Let's go back to the book of Genesis in the very early creation account. God made them male and female. He formed man of the dust of the ground, verse 7 of chapter 2. And he told man that it wasn't good for him to dwell alone. And it says in verse 18 of that chapter, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him help fitting or exactly answering to him. For out of the ground the eternal God formed every creature or beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them to Adam, etc. And then came the miracle in Adam's rib and the story of how woman came along. And he said in verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they, the two of them, shall become one flesh, one unit, as one. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, you know, God invented sex. Satan the devil is sexless. Jesus tells us, and it ought to put to rest once and for all the speculations of many religious bodies about the sixth chapter of Genesis and about the monsters and the great giants or the Nephilim at the time of the flood when God wrought destruction because of cannibalism and wars among and between various other races then. When many people assume, among them Dr. Bollinger in the Companion Bible, that angels cohabited with women, and the result was monstrosity or some ogre of some sort that came out of this unholy union. No, Jesus said very clearly to the Pharisees when they asked him the trick question about the resurrection and about the young lad who had had to raise up seed to his brother according to the law, and seven times this occurred, and they all died, all right, in the resurrection, whose wife is going to be whose, or to whom is he going to be married? And Jesus said, You err, neither knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. In the resurrection they shall be as the angels, neither marrying nor giving in marriage. Now, Satan, the devil, is part of a triumvirate of spiritual, high-level archangels, archangelic beings, meaning the angels around the ark, is where it really comes from, I think, as well as arch or ark meaning high angel. But they also were the cherubim that were right around the ark, meaning symbolic of being present at God's throne. Satan the devil is a perverted spirit. The Bible calls him the father of liars. The very first lie is, Thou shalt not surely die. God knows better than that, and there began the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Satan the devil cannot beget children. But Satan the devil is the enemy of mankind. And mankind, along with womankind, and that is an all-embracing term, is the result of what we call a true cycle. It is a cycle that has no discernible beginning, so far as we can tell, and can only be broken at death. The footprints of mankind do, in fact, lead away from the Middle East. Archaeology demonstrates that, notwithstanding Dr. Leakey and the Old of Igorge and Zinjanthropus Africanus, or the claims about multi-million 
years of age for some of the bones and relics they find in limestones and sandstones while on the surface down near uh, Glen Rose, Texas, or anywhere else. The Bible allows that the earth might be four and a half billion years of age, but archaeology always corroborates the Bible and never disputes it. And you can look into archaeology and biblical history and the history of any race or nation, and you inexorably find the archaeologist's spade will lead you back to the Sumerian Babylonian Valley between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers, lead you back to Palestine, to ancient Egypt, Babylonia, Sumeria, and Akkad, and Kalna, and Asher, and the areas of some of the old relics of the ancient Babylonian, Assyrian, and Egyptian empires. And that is where our forebears began. Abraham in the land of Ur, who was called to go into a different country and there to establish a family which would succeed him up to the multiple millions of human beings to become many races and nations. And we look at the tables of nations in Genesis, the 10th chapter, at how the earth was overspread with three major racial stocks after the flood. And it all squares, it all adds up, it all comes together. Archaeology, history, and the Bible corroborate each other. And it had a beginning, and it's still going on. As I look back at some of the civilizations of the past, among them, of course, ancient Israel, and how God told Israel not to follow the way of the heathen around them when they came into the land, I see what some of these races were doing. All religion is a celebration of life. All religion, even ancient pagan, Egyptian, and Babylonian religion, recognized where babies came from. They weren't that stupid. They married in whatever ceremony. Maybe they had the witch doctor muttering some mumbo-jumbo, but they married just like we do. Some of them married many women, and uh, some maybe there were Amazonians who married many men. I've heard of that. I'm not sure that it's true. It's like a little guy who landed in the... Uh, you've heard of that one, of course, in, in the Amazonian jungle. Take me to your leader. But I won't tell you that one. But they believed, as they saw all of these babies being born, that there was a god up there that had something to do with it. They could put a seed in the ground and see a plant come up. They knew where new wealth came from, that the corn and all the melons and squashes and all the fruit on the trees and so on came from. They could see the seasonal changes, the falling of the leaves, the shooting forth of the bud in spring. So they had harvest festivals and they had rituals connected with the deep waning rays of the sun at winter. And they would appeal to the sun to take his northern journey once more and to come back and to bring them spring. And it developed over the years into the Saturnalia, which has been adopted by the Roman Catholic Church and followed along by her protesting daughters. And they call that the Mass of Christ or Christmas, but anciently it was the Saturnalia and the Brumalia. Or they have All Hallows or All Hallows on the first day of November. So the evening of October 31st, they call it All Hallows or Halloween or Halloween. And so today they even drop the apostrophe and people dress up like goats and ghouls and run around saying trick or treat, meaning I am pretending to be an impish demon and you either give me, Sam Hain, the Lord of the Dead, a trick or else I will consign the souls of your departed loved ones to a mosquito for the next year instead of a dog, which you probably would rather have. And they would see a little old elderly lady with a cat. Elderly ladies tended to be a little lonesome in ancient Ireland, like many of them are today. And they kept cats. And many of the people believed in witches. And any elderly woman was a fair game for their belief in witches and witchcraft. So they thought they were witches, and they associated cats with elderly ladies. And so cats became a part of the ceremony of Halloween. They even used to sacrifice cats. And they used to sacrifice the little old lady. They used to put witches to death. Now, some of the pagans, as they looked at all this, harvest, seasons, growth of crops, reproduction of their own bodies, and babies being born, came up with the idea that every now and then they ought to give God one of them back. Awkward sentence, but you get the point. They'd give a baby back. Years ago, in one of the National Geographic magazines, they had a dredge that they'd gone down here in one of the Central American jungles, and they'd discovered an old jungle overgrown society of ancient stone monuments and pyramids and buildings, and they dredged this rain pool up, which had actually been constructed by human beings, I think out of solid limestone, it was quite deep, and out of the bottom of it they took the skeletons and skulls of many, many little infants, and along with them little stone and, and I guess jade or whatever pieces of, uh, what do they call, they're, they're like fetishes is the word I'm searching for, or amulets or whatever, that were symbols of their gods. Now, don't misunderstand. 
the families who got the nod from the witch doctor or the high priest were very honored. The young girls who were kept aside for several years and given the oil massage and the herbs and all of that and the steam baths who were led up to the top of the pyramid of San Juan de Teotihuacan down in Mexico, near Mexico City, to the screaming of 20,000 savages and insane priests as they carved open their chest and took out their heart and ate it, were very honored. It was a great honor to be chosen to be a sacrifice to God. So the pagans decided to sacrifice these human lives to their gods. Now, we don't do that in the United States. What we do in the United States is we allow our kids to grow up sitting cross-legged, hunchbacked, laid out in all kinds of awkward poses on the living room rug in front of a one-eyed monster that we call an automatic babysitter. And that Dagon of modern 20th century America teaches our children just about everything. Libidinous, vicarious sex, hostility, racism, violence, murder, and mayhem. Even in the cartoons, the little rabbits, mice, coyotes, and whatever are healing up giant 155-millimeter cannon, blowing each other in a, into a pink mist or a black spray or a cloud of dust. And in the very next scene, everything's back in place, and they're running along just like before. Or they're run over by a road grader or something, and they're as thin as last year's apple fritter or pancake, and they slide them under the door. Or they enter the drain pipe, and they change shape, and they get squeezed down to about an inch in diameter and come out the other end and assume their shape again. So when the police found the little boy standing in a store where their folks operated a sporting goods store, and he had the smoking pistol, and his mother was lying on the floor in a pool of blood with a three fifty seven Magnum in her stomach, he was saying, get up, mommy. Mommy, why don't you get up? He didn't know she wouldn't get up and run around just like the little cartoon kids did. Why, what's that? That's just boom. That's nothing. That's just a gun. That doesn't hurt anybody. Now, we don't sacrifice our kids, do we? Or do we? To what extent does Almighty God look down at our nation today, a nation of his children, and look at every fifth or sixth male among the population of the United States of America who is as queer as a $3 bill. They don't like that word. I like it, because they don't like it, so I like it. Queer! Or looks down and sees an increasing number of women, and I see some of them getting on television, and some of them parading around and having these various groups, and this and that, and it makes Isaiah 3.12 very poignant to me, so I'll turn to it and read it right quickly for God's people. It makes it very poignant today. And he looks down and sees all these women who call themselves lesbians, after the custom of a lot of women who lived in a Greek island in the Aegean called Lesbos, who wanted to be more like men and mannish and so on, and a woman loving a woman. He says in verse 12, chapter 3 of the book of Isaiah, As for my people... Children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. Now, you know who's going to elect the president this year. You know who set up the presidential debate, the League of Women Voters. And, of course, I know who put Kennedy in the White House. He got to go along because they voted Jackie in there. And it's been that way for years, although I don't think the choice for women has been quite so clear, except Democrats this year have a choice, and they like their choice. And I think that perhaps it was quite... Uh, Apropos that they had their meeting out in San Francisco and that Jesse Jackson uh, made the statement that he did and appealed to all the minorities that he did and talked about the Rainbow Coalition. I always knew that California was called the land of fruits and nuts, and now I know why. <laughs> oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of your paths. Now, you can go on and read the rest of it of what he says. He's not talking about the fact that God is against women because God is not against women. I'm going to prove that to you. But he said in verse 16, the daughters of Zion are haughty. Now, it has nothing to do with whether or not they ought to look nice or dress up. But it says because of that attitude of heart and mind of a kind of an arrogant haughtiness, they walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, etc., etc., and so it shows what God is going to do about all of that eventually. In verse 24, it will come to pass that instead of a sweet smell, there should be stink, and instead of a girdle, a rent, 
And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girdling of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn. And she being desolate, again a symbol of all of God's people Israel, shall sit upon the ground. Chapter 4 says, In that day seven women will take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread, we'll work, we'll earn our keep. Just let us be called by your name. We'll wear our own clothes and provide our own uh, food, clothing, and shelter. But to take away our reproach, and again, it's talking about Zion, it's talking about the church by analogy, and about physical Israel, God's elect, by a second analogy. Now, back to what I mentioned, however, is the work of the church to create and to promote family unity? Is that what we read there in Malachi, the fourth chapter? Think about these scriptures. I'm going to just tell you absolutely not. That is not what that scripture is telling us. Look at Isaiah 51, verses 1 and 2. Hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, you that seek the eternal. Look unto the rock from whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. What is he saying? He's saying, look to your roots. Look where you came from. They call us a chip off the old block, or a chunk of the rock, or whatever, or a piece of the sod of the home soil. He's saying, look to the rock from whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit from whence you are digged. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And then he goes on, the eternal will comfort Zion, etc. Verse 12, I am he that comforteth you. Why should you be afraid of a man that should die? And yet many people even in God's church are. And you forget the eternal, your maker. I am the eternal, verse 15, that divides the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth. I have covered you in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth and say unto Zion, You're my people. In many scriptures in the New Testament, and there are many of them, you read of the fathers. It is actually a part of the address of the Apostle Paul to the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews that God spoke unto the fathers, etc., by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken unto us through his Son. Let's turn to Romans, the fourth chapter, right quickly, and take a look at a couple more, just to give you a sampling of how many of them there are in the New Testament. Romans 4, verse 1, What shall we say, then, that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has whereof to glorify, but not before God. Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness. Verse 17. I'll read up to that. It is the faith of Abraham, verse 16, in the last part of that verse, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who enlivens or quickens the dead, and calls those things which be not as though they were. Over in Luke, the 16th chapter, where you read of the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, you will see in a couple of places, and I won't turn to that, where in the argument that ensues about Abraham's bosom, send Father Abraham unto them. And he calls out, O Father Abraham, would you go to them? And he said, No, even though someone went to them from the dead, they wouldn't hear. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Galatians 3.29 if ye be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. You're his children. You're Abraham's children and heirs according to the promise. If you were to ask this question of any casual student of the Bible and give them a few minutes of the concordance to find out the answer, the question being, when the Bible speaks of the fathers, who does it mean? It means a category of human beings beginning with Abraham but not excluding clear back to Enoch, and clear back to the time of Noah. It is the patriarchs and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but the patriarchs who, who actually form a part of the foundation of the New Testament church, you are formed on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. When it said, the work of Elijah would turn the hearts of the children to the fathers, who are those fathers? And here's the Bible telling his people, you ought to look to your roots. You ought to remember who you are and where you came from. 
And yet there are millions of people among our peoples in the United States and Britain and Northwestern Europe and Australia, Canada and Zealand and some of the other countries like South Africa, where they are the offspring of Manasseh, of Ephraim, of Benjamin, Zebulun, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Dan, of Judah, Levi, and Simeon, and they do not know who they are, and they do not know from whence they came. Doesn't that put new light on a part of the commission to God's church of what that work which would be coming along in the power and the spirit of Elijah should be doing? And what is one of the greatest keys to understanding of the entire scenario of future history, of biblical prophecy, but the identity of the people of Israel in the pages of the Bible? And what does that do but take a man's mind and immediately turn it back to the fathers? Until you came to understand that truth, if you do understand it, you didn't know. It just never occurred to you. You never even heard the term Gentile. It wasn't a part of your life. That's a word that the, Gen the Jews used, the Goyim or the Gentiles. And to you, it's merely a biblical-sounding word. You might have heard of a guy who lived in Chicago called Roberto Gentile or something, but that's because they named people Gentile and they pronounced it that way. But you didn't know what a Gentile was. And you, as an American, probably a Protestant in your background, didn't know much about Judaism either. The idea that Israel and the Jews are two totally different people never occurred to you. But finally, when you learn that truth, that there are four whole books of the Bible devoted to the separate national histories of Israel, with its northern capital at Samaria, with a whole separate dynasty of kings, and then with the southern capital of Judah, with its capital city at Jerusalem, and another totally separate dynasty of kings, that Judah was the house of Judah, and that Israel was the house of Israel, with all of those other tribes associated with it, you had to sort through that. You had to study history. You had to look and to try to corroborate that. Perhaps you even did like a few people have done, and went to the public library to try to look up some of the source material for yourself. Maybe you read some of the other books, and there are a couple of dozen of them available, not just Alan, and not just my father's book, but many, many books on the subject of the identity of Israel. The BIWF has published a lot of books, and other organizations have come to understand that truth. There's a book out about Zebulon being Holland that I have at home or in my office. And probably you proved that to yourself. And what did it do? But it made you aware, it awakened in you a complete and a totally different concept of your roots, of where our peoples came from, and of what God says is their destiny. Now, God is the Father, and Jesus Christ is called the Son, the first begotten, the firstborn from the dead, and the firstborn among many brethren. So we see that in the church there is a microcosm of the kingdom of God, and we see family terms being used. God is the Father, Christ is the Son, we are sisters and brothers together, you are brethren. If you want to turn to Matthew 19, you will see a promise that God gives us that I think applies both now literally and will apply in the future. Beginning in verse 27, Peter and the others were saying that we have forsaken everything and followed you. What will we have, therefore? What, what good is it going to do us? What are we going to get for having left everything, including our families? And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, not for anger, or rancor, or myth, or hostility, or ego, or hurt feelings, or personality conflicts, or uh, family power struggles, or any other of the mundane and rather gross and ugly human emotions but for the purest meaning of my name's sake, where you are ousted from the bosom of your own family because of your love, worship, and service toward Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and for no other reason, shall receive an hundredfold. And if you look around this room, you will see that in one sense that prophecy has already been fulfilled for your life. There may be an orphan or two here amongst us, but look at all of the family they have. There may be people here who are adopted. 
but look at all of your extended family. And you know, as you chat with and even meet new people here, that there is a family feeling at the Feast of Tabernacles. If you go to some of the occasions, sit down to dinner with people and get to know them and so on, it's just like a whole group of brothers and sisters, and we're all one family. And then he went on to say, and many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Now, Almighty God characterized Israel as a little waif that he found by the wayside. I can turn to Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, and show you what God says about that day. And again, it's metaphor. It is a simile of how God chose Israel. I remember, and I can't ever fail to forget when I read this scripture of some years ago, reading in the newspaper of how some garbage collectors were going along in a back alley in some city somewhere in our country, and they heard a little sound as they were about to dump this garbage can on the truck, and they looked underneath a lot of sodden newspapers, and there was a tiny baby girl. And some young mother had had an illegitimate child and simply thrown it away. Well, if you saw the presidential debate, you know that one of the most emotionally charged issues of our day and time is the issue of abortion, and that there have been millions, I think it's something like one point some odd million per year, of little unborn babies that are being put to death at age one month, two months, three months, six weeks, whatever, by frightened young girls who got pregnant as a result of a wrestling match in the backseat of somebody's automobile or in a darkened drive-in movie, or because they went over to visit the babysitter where she worked, or whatever, and because their parents have abandoned them, as I suggested earlier, and because an entire nation of people, oh no, they don't choose a little 13-year-old and keep her if she's 17 and have her walk up to the top of the temple and take out her heart. They don't just kill them one at a time. They abandon them by the hundreds of thousands on the altar of libidinous, vicarious sexual thrills of pornography, it's a sullied, rotten society in which we live. And when you talk about kidnapping of children and the incredible outpouring of pornography, and what is available out there to your children, or what even invades your own living room, especially if you have cable, if you have home box office or something like that, it is incredible. It is incredible at the pollution of the mind and the heart and the conscience that is going on in our society. And that is what God sees when he looks down. The word of the Eternal came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. A quick point, in the 23rd chapter of, I, of uh, Matthew, when Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft would I have gathered you under my wings as a mother hen her chick, but you would not, therefore is your house left unto you desolate. He is characterizing Jerusalem as a type of all of the nation or the race of Israel. Also in the fourth chapter of Ezekiel, when he made the tile, and he said, Speak unto the house of Israel and say unto them. It was symbolic of the entire nation. And you can see that right here in context. Your birth, verse 3, and your nativity is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother an Hittite. Again, it's metaphor. Actually, they came from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he is saying, you were an illegitimate, misbegotten, little, swarthy child of an unholy relationship of a couple of pagan races. And I walked by, and there you were. And the day that you were born, your navel was not cut. Neither were you washed in water to supple you. You were not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pitied you to do any of these unto you, to have compassion upon you, like the little girl I said whose mother threw her away. But you were cast out into the open field to the loathing of your person in the day that you were born. And I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in your own blood, nobody to care for you, the umbilical cord and the afterbirth lying there beside you, a bloody mess, but a living child. And I said, when you were in your blood, live. And so like, let's say, characterizing himself as a young, successful bachelor, God says, I see this misbegotten bunch of people, and of course now we're talking about Israel and Egypt, and we're talking about you, whatever your name is, and me, I know my name, lost in the Babylon of confusion of modern America. That's us. We're the little baby covered with blood. And God looks down and says, you weren't cut or swaddled. Nobody cared for you. You're just going along, bumbling along in the stupidity, the ego, the vanity, and the futility of your mind. And I said, live. And he calls you. So think about that analogy as well. So this young bachelor, successful, probably already up in his late 20s, early 30s, discovers a little baby. Takes off his own cloak like Sir Walter Raleigh before Queen Elizabeth in the mud puddle. 
and puts it over the little baby, takes her home, cleans her up. Yea, I said unto you, when you were in your blood, verse 6, live. I've caused you to multiply as the bud of the field. Gave her an education and a home and clothing. And just like any other mother or father, loved that little girl, cared for her, reared her, gave her a real good education and a fine home. And you're increased and waxen great, and you're come to excellent ornaments. Your breasts are fashioned. He looked around one day, she was 13. He had to be quite an astute parent. Some parents aren't that astute. We've known of cases in imperial schools where mothers hadn't even told their girls what was going to happen to them at about age 12 or 13. And they were so scared, they went crying and thought that some tragedy was occurring to their bodies, maybe they wouldn't even survive. The teacher had to tell them, because mom didn't know how. She was embarrassed. There are mothers like that. There are other mothers that talk to their daughters and teach them and train them and rear them. And this we're reading here is like God teaching, rearing, and training Israel and us by nurturing us in the womb, which is the mother, which is the church, and giving us the patient and the kind teaching. But he looked around one day, and instead of a little naked, hairless girl, she was a beautiful young woman. Your breasts are fashioned, your hair is grown, whereas you were naked and bare. Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee. You know, we human beings go through cycles. I'm already past my last one, so don't include me. But when we're young, especially the females among us, we blossom, just like these beautiful flowers up here. But don't come back in two weeks. You won't want to look at them anymore. And God made it that way. At that period of time, of course, we grow. We all have the same cycle. And first of all, we become a little more mobile. One day, Mom hears us make a thump and decides that she'd better put something around us on the bed. She didn't know we could dig her little heels in and make any progress. She thought we were just kicking futilely in the air. And one day, we kick ourselves off the bed, and she found out we can crawl on our back, not on our stomach. And then we begin to pull up, making gooing noises and going around the crib. Then there's the day when Daddy claps his hands, and we take one foot way up in the air and stumble and totter around and make one step. and. Just delight our parents. Oh, he took his first step. Look at there, he's walking. And we go through all of that with our kids. Well, you know, you're very embarrassed. Like when I was in junior high school, I was very young and underdeveloped for my age and very small. And I, of course, had to take gym class like all the rest of you did. So I'd go in the shower and I'd look around. There were some real old guys in there. About 14, you know. I was, we were all naked, but I was really naked. You know what I mean? And, and, and they weren't. And I'll never forget, I know it's embarrassing to talk about it, but my mom was a very understanding woman. I'll never forget when I went in, look, Mom, and she says, oh, you've got one, you know. And, and I was so proud, and little boys are. They, they get anxious about that. And uh, sometimes it's something that humor. I know I'm not talking about anything you know anything about. I'm just missing every one of you here talking about things you don't know of things I'm saying. But if you've been in a family, and every one of you have been, if you don't have one of your own, you came from one, right? So I really can't miss anybody. You know we go through those things with our children, and that we went through them as children. And there are some rich memories, and there are some things that we can teach and train our own children in the future. Well, God says that it's like the analogy of this young, handsome, bachelor, successful, who rears this little illegitimate baby, and he looks around one day, and behold... She's no longer just a naked little girl that he was bathing. Now she's a young woman. She has blossomed, and she's beautiful. And he said, I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, said the Lord Eternal, and you became mine. Now that's like a marriage agreement. And remember, the old covenant is characterized in the Bible, both in the ninth and tenth of Hebrews, eight, as well as back in the book of Jeremiah. He said, I became an husband unto them. He became their protect protector and provider and said, will you do all that I have told you to do? And the people repeated all of those laws. And in the last verses of the 19th chapter of Exodus, you read how they said, all the words that thou hast spoken, we will do. The time came in your life when God looked at you, so to speak, and said, will you? And you realized what was required, and you said, I will. And so you put out your hand and took hold of the hand of God and shook hands, in a sense, on his covenant. And you made an oath. You made a vow. You said, I will. I'll be your child, your son or your daughter. Then I washed thee with water. I thoroughly washed away your blood from thee, and I anointed you with oil. Now, hearkening back to the time when he was 
finding a little baby. I clothe thee also with broidered work, and shod thee with badger's skin, seal skin, it says in the margin, girded you about with fine linen, covered you with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments, and put bracelets upon your hand, just bought her everything, furs, handbags, purses, shoes, jewelry. I decked thee with ornaments, put bracelets upon your hands, a chain upon your neck, and a jewel on your forehead, and earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown upon your head. And thus you were decked with gold and silver like a beautiful bride, ready to walk down the altar, and with her going away clothes, and her trousseau, and a full-length mink in the closet, and just really he lavished things on her, he says. And your raiment was of fine linen, and silk, and broidered work, and you did eat fine flour, and honey, and oil, and you were exceedingly beautiful, and you did prosper into a kingdom. Again, you see the metaphor the man to the young woman, and God to Israel, and God to his church. And your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty. Remember when King Solomon allowed Hatshepsut to come to his palace, that it said there was no breath in her for what she saw. He had built huge balustrades and fountains and pools and had musicians and orchestras and choirs, and he had stables of horses, and he had landscaped and terraced that area until it was absolutely breathtaking. And she was just overwhelmed, the king of the south, or the queen, rather, of the south, or probably one of the queens of lower Egypt, upper Egypt in this case, of upper Nile. And your renown went forth among the heathen for your beauty, for it was perfect through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, said the Eternal. But you did trust in your own beauty, and played the harlot because of your renown, and poured out your fornications on every one that passed by, his it was. Now think of that analogy if you can. I don't know if there are comparable examples in my life that I can think of. I don't think of any where someone actually had a young child and she grew up in his own home and he just lavished everything on her, gave her the best of everything, an education, a home, etc. Then married her, took a trip and came home and found out she and the milkman were in there together. I don't know of anything comparable, but that's what God says it is like. And you have to imagine putting yourself in the place of such a man who went through so many years of trial and labor and struggle to lavish all of these things on her, then finding that she had betrayed him, it just is mind-boggling. But that's the way God portrays it. Verse 28, you played the whore with the Assyrians, that's Germany today, because you were insatiable. Yea, you played the harlot with them and could not be satisfied. The whole chapter goes on and on about that. And back in Ezekiel 23, he likens both Judah and Jerusalem, I should say, and Israel, Jerusalem and Samaria, to Ahola and Aholaba, the two women who played the harlot, she said in verse, he said in verse 5, when she was mine, and she doted on her lovers, on the Assyrians, her neighbors, which are clothed with blue, captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses. She committed her whoredoms with them, with all of them that were the chosen men of Assyria, with all on whom she doted, with all their idols, she defiled herself. Again, the microcosm of God's people Israel committing harlotry by abandoning his laws, his right ways of life, especially his laws regarding the family, regarding children and youth, and the way we ought to conduct our families, and the way we ought to rear and to teach our children. And the concept of the family unit, of fidelity, of trust, of a lifelong commitment from which we never turn, but which we renew year by year, and day by day, and perhaps week and month by month. You know, years ago, I was accused of watering down doctrine. I don't know what doctrine it was. Nobody ever told me. I've still never discovered what in the world it was I watered down. I have a strong hunch it's because I used to preach that I don't think God is sitting forward looking down to check up on whether or not your sideburns are at the middle of your ear or the bottom of your ear, or whether or not your hair is coming over your collar or above it, or whether or not your skirts are in the middle of the knee or below the knee. And I'm not really sure God is all that concerned. It looks to me like a naked person hanging upside down in a well is able to pray and get through to God, and probably better than some because he's a little more serious about it. And God does say, of course, that even the poor and the naked and the halt and the blind and people who are injured and like refugees are going to find refuge in his arms 
when those people call out to him in the great tribulation, and God is not going to have been concerned for decades of their lives about regimentation and measuring up to the decades uh, dictates of little Lord Fauntleroy in the local pulpit. He's going to be concerned about what goes on in the heart because God does not look on the outward appearance. When will the church learn that? But he looks on the heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance the way some people do. Almighty God characterizes himself as our Father. Let's turn to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Now, I said earlier that Satan the devil was a part of a spiritual triumvirate, that he is an archangel, and that he is unable to reproduce. But isn't it dumbfounding how Satan the devil has used sex lust and sex drives and all sorts of perverted sex to so corrupt and destroy and tear apart the fabric of our families. When you find this business, as I said, of incest, of child molestation and child abuse so rampant in American homes and families, it does make you wonder. It makes you sit up and take notice to realize how fully polluted we have become. Now, Almighty God could have done it differently. He didn't have to cause you girls to blossom and become beautiful to a young boy or a young man when you're 16, 17. And I suppose God could have caused our minds to mature before our bodies, so we could have sounded like 40 years of age mentally when we were seven, like Jonathan Hill did. And I won't go into that, but that was interesting. His family never let him use baby talk. Some people like to call things what they are. It's kind of shocking to the ladies at the bridge party when a little kid comes in and says what he's got to go do in clinical terms, no mistaking it, but uh, it can just blow you out. But that's exactly what Jonathan would do. Anyway, now I did say it, didn't I, without saying it. But... Almighty God, in dealing with us as his children, begets us in really the same way, except it is a spiritual life-giving force rather than a physical life-giving cell. Now, as I said, God could have done it a different way. I suppose that he could have limited our families by saying the way that we reproduce ourselves is to cut off the tip of a little finger and plant it in a flower pot and water it and it'll grow into a child. That would be neat and clean and clinical, and you could tell how many people, how many families people had by the number of digits they were missing. Or God could have caused spores to come out of our ears, and when we go along, we get all twitter-pated, and we're in love with someone, but it goes, you don't even see it, you know, and all of a sudden she goes home, you've been dancing together, and she goes home and says, Mom, I'm pregnant, because you rubbed ears, you know. But it doesn't work that way. It works the way God designed it. It takes male and female. And the greatest proof, of course, against evolution is reproduction, sexual reproduction. The cohabiting of male and female in marriage, in love, which results in the reproduction of a young child, which is a fabulous miracle, who is of our own seed and of our own kind, and who is a fabulous responsibility. If you would turn quickly, I want to keep my place in Romans 8, I want to come right back and just insert this right quickly, back in the book of 1 Timothy, the third chapter, and it says, if a man desires an office of an overseer or a bishop, a minister, he desires a good work. A bishop must then be blameless, the husband of one wife. Why? Why does God require that a minister should have the experience of marriage and of being a wife? And how can churches say that a minister or a priest or a cleric ought to be celibate when God's word says the very qualifications for a minister to serve the congregation, who are after all married people and families, aren't they, is that he himself be a married person and the head of a family, because he's got to be seasoned and tried in the same way that the people with whom he's dealing have their problems which are seasoning and trying them. Vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, able to teach, not given to wine, not a drunkard, no brawler or striker, not greedy of money, filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well, not in harsh, dictatorial, judgmental, leaping to conclusions, and so on, but that controls in patience and kindness, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity." Likewise, the deacons, he says, talking about the deacons, must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, verse 9, 
and let them first be proved and let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so, notice their marriage, marriage state, must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. God wants the leadership in the church to be sound family leadership. Having that experience, ruling their children in their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Back in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans, it says that Almighty God begets us by his Holy Spirit. He says in verse 9, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God lives or dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, a father, when he begets a child, he, through the act of love, which we call sexual intercourse, allows, or can't prevent, a portion of his own life, what he transmits to the body of the female, which penetrates a human female ovum, is a part of his life, living, cellular, molecular structure. And in that tiny, living, little being, if you want to call it that, now not capable of living beyond its ability to live by uniting with a female cell any more than we are capable of surviving if Almighty God does not unite with his Holy Spirit, with our spirit that is in our minds that makes us way above human, I should say, animals. And what is living in that man's body is still living the next day. All the rest of them die. And it's still living three days from then. And it's living six weeks from then. And it stays alive. In fact, it is his life. And he gave it. And she had a living ovum. And it's her life. And in each of those is a tiny microscopic pattern. And that pattern has actually been produced in the body of the male and the female so as to include height, shape, weight, the type of hair probably you're going to have, hair color, color of your eyes, certain proclivities and abilities, the tenor, ten, uh, timber, I should say, or tenor of your voice, whether your hair is going to fall out when you're 30 or you keep it till you're 90, all sorts of things that you, you'd be amazed. Musical ability, artistic talent, something your paternal grandmother used to be good at, maybe it's transmitted through that tiny... It's almost like this whole business of little silicon chips, of these little bitty micro-miniaturized circuits that they can put into computers and so on. It's somehow like a little micro-miniature computer chip circuitry in that little microscopic cell, your ability to pass on your life. Think of it that way. It's never been brought out that way before is there. Now, unfortunately, in human families, that capacity is there when we're 13 or 14, long before our minds have caught up and have become mature enough to be able to take on the responsibility of a parent that our physical body is capable of reproducing. So when that life is passed on, it stays alive. Now, when the Bible tells us that you are Abraham's children, that is not just a vague, ethereal, historical statement. It has been an unbroken cycle, and you probably don't know the name, I sure don't, of my great-great-great-grandfather. Matter of fact, by the time I got past the first grade or to the first grade, I don't remember the name. Uh, that's because, unfortunately, there was never any emphasis placed on that in my family. I remember when I was in my early teens, the only time my father ever went by to try to discover the grave of his father was at my mother, my grandmother's insistence, and we couldn't find it. It was grown over with grass, and it was no headstone, and my father never went back. So I never had any training about my grandmother's parents or her parents. I don't know much about them. Many families do, and it's to their benefit. If you have the decoupage, the way they like to make them look antique pictures of your ancestors back two or three generations, more power to you. You should. And we ought to teach our children who those people were and what their lives were like and what they did and where they lived and where they came from. 
But when God says, you are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's not just speaking in some broad general term, some spiritual term, some historical term. He's telling you the truth. That's where you came from. I know it's kind of embarrassing to talk about the way they swore an oath in those days. When the old patriarch said what he did about where the other fellow was to put his hand, oh sure, it's going to embarrass some people. But Almighty God isn't embarrassed about where you came from. He's not embarrassed about what two young people are looking forward to when you say the words at a wedding ceremony. He is just as pleased as he can be because that's the way he set it up. And it's beautiful, and before God it is more than that, it is holy. And it ought to be kept that way and recognized as such. Not only beautiful, but holy before God. So in a very real sense, since that seed is you, male or female, and it's alive and it stays alive, it's still you when it's six weeks or six months or nine months. And when it's born, that's you. You gave that life. And in that sense, it is part of you. Sure, we... As a father, uh, all we have to do with it, we like to think, is that one moment. From then on, it's up to mom. And then she takes it from there. And nine months later, because of her, and now they're finding out a lot of things about pregnancy, by the way, but uh, they should have known that way back when. I think any thinking person would have about what women ought to avoid, about diet and so on. But at nine months, full-term child, and hopefully, because if the mother is, is intelligent enough, and many of them aren't, there will be a healthy baby. But they're actually saying now that no mother ought to take one single drink at any time during the entire nine months of pregnancy. Well, neither should she, she smoke. And neither should she take any drugs or tranquilizers or any chemicals. And neither should she ingest any pollutants into her bloodstream or her lungs. And she ought to be thinking, I'm building inside my body a human being. And she ought to be careful enough to want to build a perfect human being. But a lot of them aren't. They just feed in their own face and tranquilizing their own mental difficulties and killing their kids or handicapping them or making them turn on the drugs before they're even out of the womb. But that's another subject that I won't belabor. But God says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Now, there are no human beings in here that are mine but three. And I know mine. I recognize them. They look like me. I know where they came from. And they look like their mom. And she knows where they came from. And I gave them life. And thanks be to God, we are deeply and closely together. You know, there's one thing that happened in what happened in my family about six years ago. Amazingly, both of my sisters, with whom there had been certain estrangement for the years that I was in the church, and I, are now much closer than we have ever been since I was a little boy. And in the case of my own family, I don't know how we could be closer. I just don't know how in the world you could have any more joy than to live with a couple of three fine young men, one of whom now, of course, is married, and, and uh, the other two are not as yet married, but they're young men up in their 20s, late 20s, and still unabashed, unashamed to tell their father, I love you, Dad, give you a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. I'll tell you that means so much you can't even begin to believe it. And instead of estrangement, Instead of them embarrassed about this or embarrassed about the religion or way off in some other state doing their own thing or hostility or anger, we have this tremendous outpouring of warmth and of sharing and uh, just the, the kick of watching them have fun and us enjoying it with them. We're out here watching them go around these little motor scooters last night, and they wanted to get me in there. I thought, oh boy, somebody here with a camera, that'd be the end of me. I thought, Man, oh sure, I can just see them in my suit and my old necktie on and here I am with this dumb helmet, going around and around out there in this go-kart. I thought, I don't know if I ought to do that or not. Maybe I should have. I don't know. But I didn't. I left that up to them. But I'll tell you, that is really worthwhile. Now, God Almighty says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Verse 9. And he knows his own, and his sheep hear his voice. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, on down in verse 15, you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. You better pray for your brethren by the tens of thousands who think they have. And in a very real sense, perhaps that's the type of teaching they're getting, a teaching of fear and a teaching of bondage. But you have received the spirit of sonship. It means more in the Greek than mere adoption. 
because adoption does not connote legal, I should say, you know, real congenital father. It, it connotes legality only, like a document. And this is connoting the real fact that he is our father, whereby we cry, Abba, which is Hebrew, for father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. As I've said for year after year after year, what is the point of all of this? You look at the Sunday morning comedy hour. I woke up unpleasantly this morning. My wife was sneaking a peek at one of these, one of these characters on television. And uh, I heard this obnoxious sound emitting forth from the living room, and I couldn't stand it anymore. I had to get up and complain about it. And I look at all of this, it, to me, it's almost Sunday morning is just like driving down toward Branson. One thing Branson needs is about a hundred more signs <laughs> to advertise. They need to advertise around here, tell you where to go. Arrows and lights and signs and everything. And that's like Sunday morning. We got the best rates. We got the lowest rates. Come in here. No, come in here. No, come over here. Well, why? Well, it's fun. Well, it's good. And we want your money besides that. And come in here and have fun. Well, of course it's fun, but it costs money to have fun. So I hear these people. Well, I hear them. I hear about them. I used to look at them a little bit, but I try not to anymore. My wife watches them. And they all say basically the same thing. Be saved. Love God. Love Jesus Christ. And while you're at it, send me some money because if you don't, I can't keep telling you that. And the other guy is telling you the same thing, but I'm telling you better than he is. Because I'm telling you, God won't just bless you. He'll bless you real good if you listen to me. And then they weep and wail, and they cry real tears and say, the greatest disaster in the history of the world is about to happen. We're going off your television station if you don't send me some money. And I have asked for the years, what's it all about? What's the point they're trying to make? Here we are, like, like you know, so many carrots or vegetables out here. And having all of these people hawking their wares like a carnival barker hip to hoot to see the naughty nudie come in here and see the show and so on, trying to dazzle us, trying to sing and wail and weep and going up and, you know, some of them have got a mobile microphone and they're pacing up and down like a caged bear and a lot of them are kind of saucy and sarcastic and they're a lot of would-be ham actors, I think, that were frustrated and couldn't make it in Hollywood and tried religion is what I've got figured out. But anyway... It is amazing. You want to ask, well, all right, but what is the point? Like the marquee I told you about outside of the church there in Tyler, it says sin, a moment's pleasure, and an eternity of remorse. They talk against sin. They don't ever tell you what it is. They never quote 1 John 3, 4. They don't tell you we have to keep God's Ten Commandments. They don't tell you what is the plan and the purpose of God. They don't tell you that we're to be begotten as God's child and to be born into his family. They don't tell you that the human family is a microcosm of God's kingdom. They don't understand what is God's kingdom. Many of them don't even believe. Some years ago, it was up to 44% of the graduates of America's seminaries who did not believe that Jesus Christ was going to come literally and stand on the earth. I don't know what the percentages are now. I think there's been an upturn in evangelical Christianity, so a larger percentage today may believe in the second coming of Christ. But back a few years, when it was more liberal in the 60s, they did not. But you wonder, what is all of this you hear? There is no real cohesiveness, no sharp focus to their message. It doesn't make sense. It's just emotion. But repent, be baptized, begin to clean up your life, live together in your family unit in the way that you should, how to conduct yourself on the job, laws of God involving health, diet, how you ought to eat. Those things somehow are absent. It's always just the emotion of believe on Jesus and so on. But he goes on to say, The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, God's kids. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So he goes on to talk about the groaning and travailing of the creation saying in verse 22, we know the whole creation groans and prevails in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. What would a man see? If he does see it, why would he yet hope for it? If we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? 
Likewise, the Spirit also helps our infirmities. We don't even know sometimes how we ought to pray as we ought. But the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He that searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and I can look back, as I said, in my own case, in my own family, that what happened to me in 1978 has worked together for good in the long run. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We are to be born of God into the kingdom of God, which is, of course, God's extended family. Now, I think you've learned something this morning. First of all, the work that is to come today in the power and the spirit of Elijah is not necessarily a work that merely emphasizes family unity, although I still think that's a part of the gospel and a part of the word of God and a very important part. But that is not the meaning of that prophecy about the spirit of Elijah in the last verses of Malachi 4. That there are three great family units, God as the family of God in the heavens above. Then the church, brothers and sisters, as God's children and your extended family, and then, of course, the family unit, which is a microcosm of the kingdom of God. Yes, it is true, the Feast of Tabernacles is a family occasion. It sure has been for me. And I hope that all of you, if you are single, if you're elderly, if you don't have any of your immediate or extended family members here, then please avail yourself of the fellowship and of various social occasions and dinners and what have you with other people and get to know new people and learn more about your family right here. Because to me, it's the richest time of the year and a time when even though I'm with my children and see them every week and sometimes a couple of them every single day, there is a richness and a fullness of experiencing being together as a family at the Feast of Tabernacles that is absolutely special and unique from any other time of the year.